If you were with us last Sunday, we uh, we were there as we walked through Isaiah chapter three and Isaiah chapter four, and we spoke of how it was similar to climbing a large hill um, or even up to a mountain, and the climb was tough. It was difficult. And but I said that if we just made it to the top to last Sunday, the view there was going to be worth it. And as we came there, we saw in Isaiah chapter four this beautiful unveiling of what is coming with Christ, of what Christ has done for us. This the branch of the Lord, as he was called there in verse two, and how he's going to redeem his people and watch over his people, that he would be a, a shelter for them, a refuge in the midst of the storm. It was finally one who could bring peace. And, and so we spoke of the greatness of God's grace. And this week, as we come into Isaiah chapter 5, I want to prepare you a statement that Paul is going to make, and we're going to close with it today. We'll come there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul speaks on the church and tells them, do not receive the grace of God in vain. In Isaiah chapter 5, again, somewhere in the period of 700 B.C., the people of Israel are going to receive the grace of God in vain. And so there's a warning to the people of Israel that they do not heed And so, therefore, Paul also gives a warning to the church, to the people of God. Do not simply hear this good news and despise or reject it, but instead instead, heed the grace of God. Do not receive God's grace in vain. So pick up up with me, if you would, beginning in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Isaiah, it's as if it's karaoke night, Isaiah grabs the mic and he comes to sing a love song of all things. I'm not sure if it's a ballad or what he's looking for, but nonetheless, Isaiah grabs the mic, he begins to sing, and we hear this karaoke moment of Isaiah singing. So listen in, it's kind of an unveiling, it's going to kind of walk you through step by step, it's kind of a mystery song that he's singing about, so we got to listen, tune our ears to see what he's, who he's singing about and what he's trying to say. So verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song. So Isaiah has a love song concerning his vineyard. So he's speaking about someone that has a vineyard. He says, my beloved had a vineyard, vineyard on a very fertile hill. The fertile hill was... Obviously, the land of Canaan, the land that was defined when they went to the promised land, a land of milk and what? Milk and honey. It was a land that was prosperous and and, and overflowing. It was there lying next to the Mediterranean Sea. If you know much about geography, you know that Israel's there in a very fertile place, a place that even now abounds with oil and other rich resources. It is a a very lavish land. He says, listen, I want you to know that this vineyard was planted on a very fertile hill. Look what he says that this owner of the vineyard does. It says the owner of the vineyard dug. He dug it and he cleared it of stones. Now, it's obviously clear that um, he's he's preparing the land to receive something, right? He had to dig dig it out and clear it. But also we know that what might have happened around a vineyard in that day and time is they would have dug it out so they would have created a large moat around it. The water would have helped keep out those that were trying to get in that shouldn't be there, predators and others. And he says, listen, I want you to know that my vineyard, I worked very hard. I, I cleared it. I dug it. Of, I cleared it of stones. I dug it out. 
Further look what he says. I planted it with choice vines. He said, I didn't cheap on this. I didn't half on this, right? Um, some of you that are cheap and tight like me, sometimes you cheap and half on a lot of things. This is not like half sweet tea, half water, right? This is all sweet tea, right? So he says, listen, I want you to know it's the choices of vines. Look further what he says. He says he built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hoed out a wine vat in it. The watchtower is obviously there as part of protection, right? And you're going to see that there's further protection in a moment. But he says, listen, I want you to know that there's going to be protection there. But there's something major about the watchtower and the wine vat that he's trying to communicate to you and I. Permanency of residence. He says, listen, I want you to know that the watchtower is going to be there because that's where I want to dwell. I want to dwell in the midst of my vineyard. And in fact, I'm going to come and stay for so long that I'm going to need a wine vat because I'm going to have a permanent place of storage. This is permanent occupancy. He's not looking to rent and leave. He says, listen, I want you to know that I want to dwell there. And then look what it says here. This moment comes when it says he looked for it to yield grapes, but actually it yielded what? Wild grapes. The imagery there is, depending upon your translation, how it renders it. He's describing stinking fruit. He says, I look for good fruit, but instead the fruit was in fact rotten. And so you can imagine again as it's karaoke night as Isaiah's grabbed the mic and began to sing. And they're like, man, this, this guy's done a lot for the vineyard. It doesn't appear that they've, it's turned out very well. And so look what Isaiah's going to do. He's going to begin to unveil for you and I and for those folks Who's Isaiah even singing about? Who's the owner of this vineyard? Look what he says here. Further with me, beginning in verse 3 and 4. He says, Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, he says, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to be done for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? He's saying, Listen, guys, what more was there to be done for my vineyard? I have done. I've already done it. They have received a great abundance of grace. And look further. He's going to, again, just kind of keep pulling back further and further. Isaiah is helping us see who is this person that owns this vineyard. Look what he says, beginning in verse 5. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Listen to this moment of judgment that comes. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. There was a hedge for protection. There was a wall for protection. He already had dug out and most likely built the moat for protection. And now it's all going to be removed. And this is a, this is a, a difficult moment, right? You're going to see most likely you're probably tracking with me. I'm not sure how much the people of Israel are tracking there on karaoke night to recognize who he's actually singing about. But they're probably starting to clue in this is God. If you, if you got that far, you're, you're with it. You're going to see it in a moment. This is the one that can tell the rain stop. This is none other than Israel's God who's the owner of this vineyard. But this is a difficult moment for us and obviously for them as the people of God that God is going to remove the hedge of protection from His people. And this ought to be a moment that provides chilly willies for us to recognize and see if it's possible for them, might it be permissible that God would do something similar in my life? Would God permit something like that to happen? Why might God remove the hedge of protection from me? Right, this is a, this is a difficult moment. Walk with me further though. Verse 6, he says, I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. Again, 
If you're waiting, the curtain has been pulled back. This is the God of Israel who is the owner of this vineyard. And Isaiah is not going to finish his love song there. Listen to what he continues with. Verse 7. If they were wondering in that day and time, well, who's the vineyard? Maybe he's speaking about our enemies, right? I mean, surely God would not remove the hedge of protection from us. Surely God would not permit these things for us. For, he says, I want you to know who I'm singing about. For, he says there, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is in fact who? The house of Israel and the specifically the men of who? Judah. For the people of God, judgment is coming. And he's going to say in a moment that God is going to, he's going to whistle because that's how great this God is. And when he whistles, he says that the nations, these great, ruthless, powerful nations, like a dog, will come running at his command. And he's calling them to his people and he's removed the hedge and he's inviting judgment for his people. This is a challenging moment, a moment in which I just scribbled down these questions this past week. How did they get there? And am I headed in that direction as well? Right. Like if this is the people of God and they've received that great grace. Right. I mean, look, all that he had done for his vineyard. He he had dug it out. He had cleared it of stones. He had planted the choices of vines. He set the watchtower in the middle of it. He had created the wine vat for storage. Everything had been done. And yet these people, these people who had heard the truth of Isaiah chapter four and this great coming branch of the Lord who would deliver and protect them. These are the very people that the hedge of protection is going to be removed And God is going to whistle and nations are going to come running, bringing judgment. And so I just had to ask those questions. How did they get there? And am I headed in that direction as well? And what we're going to see is is Isaiah is now going to drop the mic from singing and go into doctor mode. And he's going to reveal Israel's latest EKG for you and I. He says, you want to know why this is going to happen. I'm going to reveal a little bit of an EKG, a spiritual heart, heart, a heart survey on what's happening in the lives of the people of God that is inciting this judgment. And so when he begins to reveal this latest EKG of what's happening in the midst of Israel, we're going to begin to see their attitudes toward many things. First, their attitude toward material gain and pleasure. Look what it says. Beginning in verse 8. Woe, right? So you hear these woes. These are reminders of coming judgment, of alerting people. You're going your own way. Woe to those who join house to house and who add field to field until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. It says, listen, Leviticus chapter 25 verses 23 through 24 had made clear that the land was a gift from God. And there was allotment to each tribe. And even amongst those tribes, certain families and clans would all get their land. And what was happening is, is that often the people who had become rich, according to Amos chapter 2, they were abusing their power. And so they were taking advantage oftentimes when when maybe the prospering crops weren't coming in. And so the rich were beginning to acquire the land. It says they were adding field to field and house to house. And they were building all these things up, neglecting the poor, overlooking others and robbing their own people. 
You don't believe that's true? We'll look further with me when we come. I think it's about verse 23 of this chapter here in Isaiah 5. We're going to see that the, the it says, Who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. This was the leadership of the people. The wealthy folks had began to abuse others. And they were neglecting God's law that had provided placement for all the people. Well, what's the question is, is what will God's response be? Look further with me. Verse 9 of Isaiah 5. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. He says, you can have your big houses, but nobody will be there dwelling. Further, look what he says. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and that's approximately ten acres will reveal or, or yield about six gallons. Ten acres, six gallons. He says, you can have all your field upon field upon field upon field. But you may forget that I am the God who brings the harvest. And a homer of seed shall yield about an ephah. He says, literally, your return is going to be about one-tenth of what you had most wanted. We might say in our vernacular, don't poke the bear. Be careful, Israel. And again, we might hear this in listening to Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, and remind ourselves, do not... Reject the grace of God or do not receive the grace of God in vain. Look further at their attitudes. This was their attitude toward material gain, but look at their attitude toward pleasure. Again, we're seeing their EKG as Isaiah unveils it. Woe, he says again in verse 11 of Isaiah 5, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Notice that they rise early and they go to bed late. It's alcohol that gets them out of the bed in the morning and keeps them out of the bed at night. They are consumed by it. Notice what else he says there. This wine, this desire to be drunk, this desire to consume this. He says it literally inflames them. This is not necessarily simply the result of what happens, but this is the purpose of their drinking. And notice, as any good party would have it, look what it says in verse 12. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast. They have a great party. Let the band play. But... They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, verse 13, therefore, my people, God's people, go into what? Exile. Why, God? For what? For lack of what? Lack of knowledge. The alcohol may have. Provided pleasure for a season. The partying may have been fun, but it's in fact debted them to the very things of God. It's created within them a lack of knowledge. Their pursuit of the world has allowed them to find the world, but instead, in the midst of that, they've forgotten their God. And he says, I want you to know, because of this, I am going to bring judgment because there is a lack of knowledge. There is a lack of pursuit and honoring me. I remember, I don't know how many of you, but I remember on Sunday mornings at my house, I would hear blaring out throughout the house, turn your radio on, get in touch with what? Get in touch with God, right? And I would begin to hear all these radios and they, uh, the stations, and they would preach in and all the stories going across. And I would hear that each Sunday morning as we were getting ready for church. And I remember that. And, and listen, he says, turn your radio on. That's what's happened. They've turned their spiritual radio off by the very lifestyle they're living 
Again, brothers and sisters, we think it not to be a big deal, but in fact, we are quieting our, our ears to the voice of God. And then we have this statement, verse 14 of Isaiah 5, which is a perplexing one to say the least. Therefore, he says, another response, Sheol, which speaks of death and the grave. Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled and they each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. Remember back in verse 8, they were greedy for more and more gain, more and more houses, more and more parties, more and more drinking, more and more of this. He says, I want you to know, house of Judah, who's actually hungry, death is hungry and he's eating at the Judah King Buffet. He says, listen, I want you to know that Sheol, which speaks of the grave and death, it has enlarged its appetite. You think you're hungry for the things of the world? I'm telling you who's actually hungry. Death is hungry for you. And it's coming. Again, these are the folks who had just heard the beautiful words of Isaiah 4 and the great news of the grace of God. And yet they are receiving it in vain. This is not a God who simply says, well, I'm sorry, you made a mess of things. This is a God who says, I dug it out. I cleared it of stones. I, I, I made the moat around you. I put a hedge of protection around you. I put a wall around you. I planted my, my, my watchtower in the midst of you. I created the vat there for a long ending pleasure. And he says, you guys have despised me and gone after other things. So look further with me. Not only their attitude toward material gain and pleasure, look at their attitude toward sin. Again, we're looking at that spiritual, spiritual EKG of the people of God. Verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Look what it says here. Who draw sin as with cart ropes. They have so much sin in their lives that they almost need a cart to haul it, Isaiah says. It's literally become like a parade. And the parade they have is their sin. And they're just bringing it down Main Street with them. Look forward with me, verse 19. This is their attitude toward God. They say to God, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel, the Holy One of Israel, draw near and let it come that we may know it. If God really cares about the way we live, then let him do something about it and do it quick. I mean, look, they're shaking their fist at God saying, who are you? I mean, you can't do anything. We're living it up. We're enjoying pleasure this is our lives. Look further. Not only their attitude toward material gain and pleasure, not only their attitude toward sin and God, but look further with me. Verse 20. We're going to see now also their attitude toward morality. Woe to those who call evil what? Good. And good evil. Who put darkness for light. Who put bitter for what? Sweet. Does it sound familiar? I mean, again, we're talking 700 B.C. We're 2,700 years removed. But does it sound a little bit like the Estados Unidos in which you and I dwell? Seeking and living for material gain, drunken pleasure, seeking, living and parading sin, shaking our fist at God. And now morality perverting and twisting the truth, calling evil good and good evil. Well, look at their attitude toward truth. And this is, I think, maybe coming to the height of which of their sinfulness. Look at verse 21. Woe to those who are 
wise what? In their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And I think this is really what's working behind the scenes with it all. That all truth has become equal. We're wise in our own sight. Listen, that may be truth for you. That may be truth for you, grandma or grandpa. That may be truth for you, mom or dad or, or son or daughter. That may be truth for you. But I want you to know that's your truth, right? The Bible is your truth. This is my truth. We become wise in our own eyes. And literally he says, I want you to know that's where all of this has been leading. This has all been pointing that direction that all truth has become equal. And this is the people of God, guys. This isn't America. This isn't just the outward nations. He isn't talking about the Assyrians and Babylonians. This is the people who had received great grace. So if you and I for a moment think that we could not do the very same thing, be careful. For you may be becoming wise in your own eyes. And so I, I, I wrote down these questions after I got to this point in the text and I just wrote, these down i said how does a society get to that place and even more so how do god's own people get there right like how does society end up that way maybe we can say that as a whole like okay the society right i get it but this is god's people how did they end up there i think verse 24 is maybe the climax of the answer of what's happening here I'll read it to you in context and then just pull out a couple things. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For, and this is, I think this is the clarity, for, he says, they have rejected what? The law of the Lord of hosts and they have despised what? The word of the Holy One of Israel. I read those words, and I'm, I'm going to share with you something that stood out to me. But before I get there, there was a profound moment this morning in my reading. Um, part of my reading was in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's a prophet by the man, name of Nathan who goes to David, who is a man after God's own what? Yeah. So if you think that you are above doing something, read the Bible, I guess, is what I would say. We're all very, very capable. If you think this message is for the person next to you, or if you really wish that person down the street was hearing this today, we need this. I need this. Listen to what he says. For they have rejected and despised it. So again, that word, those words rejected and despised, they caught me. And this is what happened. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan comes to David, a man after God's own heart, who had gone and, and committed adultery with a woman. And then when they found out that she was pregnant, what did he do to her husband? Had him killed. This guy, the man after God's own heart, and that guy actually is the king over Israel. That guy. And in verse 9 of my reading this morning, morning in 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says, Nathan says these words at David. He says, listen, David, here's all that you've done. You know why you've done it, David? For you have despised, the very word you're seeing here, the word of the Lord. You've despised it. You've rejected it, David. And listen, when I read that again this week, those, those words there, those terms, despised and rejected, I thought of Isaiah 53, just like an alarm went off on my head of, of thinking about Isaiah 53, verse 3, where it says about the coming Christ, he was despised in what? 
rejected. A man of sorrows and familiar with what? Suffering. Like one from whom men and women, boys and girls, hide their faces. Listen, guys, when we reject and despise the Word of God, we're ultimately rejecting and despising the true Son of God. So what will God's response to this be? Well, verse 25 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against His people. He stretched out His hand against them and struck them. And look further with me. This is what it says. Verse 26, He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily, they come. When God's people receive His grace in vain, the only thing left for His people is judgment. And that's why I want to transition now just for a moment as we close out to the New Testament and Paul to the church at Corinth to remind us that this isn't simply a word that needs to be kept in 700 B.C. This isn't just simply an Old Testament word. This is also a New Testament word to the church of Jesus Christ, to God's own people. Look with me if you would, Second Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. And he died for all. What you're going to notice, I'm going to try to bring out maybe three main points real quickly with us as we come to a close here. And each of these main points is anchored, our response is anchored in what Jesus has done for us. Look what it says here. Again, and Jesus ultimately, the grace of God that's been lavished upon us. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. He says, listen, guys, the purpose of our living is to live for him, but to live for him who died for us. So our, our response of living, our response of grace is to live for him and not for ourselves. Further with me, look at me, verse 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, again, look at that, in Christ. So we're, we're saying what he's done, he died for all back in verse 15. Now that we are in Christ, something's happened. He is a what? A new creation. The old is what? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He says, listen, for the people of God who have received the grace of God, that way of life is no longer your identity. You become a new creation. And look what he says. It's because you're in Christ, not because you're strong enough or good enough on your own. It's the power of Christ in you. Look further with me, if you would. Jump on in. Uh, verse 21. For our sake, it says, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So again, God has done something. He made Jesus to be sin. So that in Him. Notice that again. In Him. Everything that happens is always a response to what He's already done. The imperative, as it said in the English language, the imperative is always rooted in the indicative. What Christ has done, the indicative, our imperative is responsive to that. It's never us initiating. It's always what He's done, our response to grace. It is our response to grace that transforms our lives. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then we come to this verse that I wanted to close with. Verse 1 of Second Corinthians chapter 6. Working together with him, then we appeal to you, look what he says here, not to receive the grace of God, what? In vain.
Don't receive God's grace in vain. What is God's grace? Everything that's been done for you in Christ. To the people of Israel, what is God's grace? It was everything He had done as that vineyard. He had brought you out of nowhere. He had delivered you from all of your enemies. He had planted you in the most lavish land. He had set His presence among you. He had given you His holy word. He had established over you a cloud by day and a fire by night. He had delivered you out of Egyptian bondage. This is the God of all faithfulness and grace. And you've done nothing to earn or deserve it. And He says, yet you guys have received the grace of God in vain. And so the people of God today are warned. Guys. Don't think that you're above receiving the grace of God in vain. You'd say, well, Blake, if I receive the grace of God in vain, how might that look or how might I protect myself from that? I want to show you this as we close. First Corinthians 15, Paul uses the very same words again. He's the author of second Corinthians, also the author of first Corinthians. So same author, same verbiage. So it creates a lot of good context and relationships. So look at me what. Paul says in verse 9, For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He says, you made some big mistakes. You want to know who made some really big mistakes? I killed people that followed this guy, the Son of God, the Messiah. So you think that you've done something that's too far beyond God's grace? I'll tell you who's done that. Me, Paul! And yet he still loved me. He still loved me. So Paul might whisper or push back to us with all of our trump cards in our hand. You think you got a hand to play? I'll show you a hand to play. I killed people that followed the Messiah. Try that one on. That's the chief. And yet, listen to what he says here. It's beautiful. This is beautiful. But by the what? Grace of God, what? I am what I am. Oh, hallelujah. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And then look what Paul does. This is very, very interesting. Again, you're holding everything you've just read from Isaiah chapter 5 about the vineyard and all that they've done. And now you're looking at 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1. You're hearing, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Now you're hearing Paul talk about the grace of God and you're going to see, you're going to bring it all together and say, okay, Blake, how do I live? How do I respond to this? Where do I go from here? Listen to what he says. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Whoa! So you're telling me in 2 Corinthians 6.1, don't let it be in vain. And now you're telling me that the grace of God toward you was not in vain. How, Paul, might I know this? Look what he says as we close. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So you say, listen, what was God's grace to Paul? Was it not in vain? No, because there was what? There was a work going on. Paul says, I want you to know how you, how I can recognize the grace of God was not in vain. He says, there was a work going on. So you're saying, okay, so you're saying I have to do something. Hold the brakes just for a moment. I worked harder than any of them, though it was what? It was not I. It was not me. But what? The grace of God that is with me. He says, I've never left the old rugged cross. I drive my anchor there and I give the shortest leash possible and you may see me going and experiencing shipwrecks and hardships and prisons and persecutions. You may be seeing me beaten, stoned, whipped, mocked, jeered, left out. He says, you may see all of that. Yes, it's evidence 
of the work of God not being in vain in my life. But he says, if you ever for a moment think that's some great Paul, you are mistaken. It is simply the grace of God that is at work within me. Wow. Y'all seeing it? It's come apart. I taped my tie together because it was broken. Some of you, you're trying to tape a lot of stuff together. I didn't plan that. It just kind of happened. Right? I'm cheap. Right? Come on, y'all know I'm cheap. I'm going to tape my tie together as long as I can. I'll tape it back too. Some of you are trying to tape your lives together. Man, there's going to come a day when you're going to expose. I don't know if it's going to be in front of everybody at the church. There may be a day when it's much worse that it gets exposed. It's before God the Father in heaven. So what I would appeal to you right now in this moment is for you and your little piece of the tape, just like me, you're trying to hold things together, is return back to the gospel. Return back to the grace of God, the mercy of God that first accepted you. You say, Blake, I'm, I'm in fear that I might be receiving the grace of God in vain. Then great, return back to the grace of God. Repent today and return back. That His grace still stands. The mercy of God still stands. That despite all that you and I have done, all the ways in which we have despised and rejected the Word of God and the way of God, this God still loves us. He's not given up on us. There's an invitation to come home. Luke 15 says that God is so good. Jesus says, my dad, in fact, sits on the porch and waits for you. Because he does not give up. My dad does not stop loving even when we stop loving Him. That's how great His grace and mercy is. Would you respond today? Don't receive this grace of God in vain. Don't turn your back on it. Don't reject it. Respond back to the grace and mercy of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You. God, thank You that You're so much greater than my tape. God, I can try to tape things up. I can... Man, but God, I'm so weak. I'm so inadequate. Only your grace is enough. Father, I know today that your word declares that conviction is only truly by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray now in this moment that your spirit, who has been speaking through your word for the glory of your son Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, that you would draw people unto you. Undeniably, God, we're all here. We've got places in our lives we're rejecting your grace. Father, what might it look like for us to cry out to you earlier to sing, heal our land, and yet now realize, heal my own soul, God. Start here with me. Father, I pray that your spirit would move and that you would draw us to that grace of God, to what Christ has done for us, that we would return home. Thank you, Father, that you sit on the porch and you watch and you wait. Call us, draw us, lavish your grace upon us. Your kindness leads us to repentance. I pray this in hopes of what only the name of Jesus can do. In his name I pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. The grace of God, beloved, do not receive it in vain. Respond to God's grace as mercy. Reject it not. Turn not away. Return home. Return back to God's grace as mercy kindness in Christ Jesus. Would you come this morning? I'd love to pray with you. Would you come?